there's this quote that I really like that's attributed to Charles Darwin all over the internet, but Darwin never said it. And no one really knows the origin of this quote. I guess it goes to show you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet. Anyway, the quote goes like this. It is the long history of humankind and animal kind too that those who learned to collaborate and improvise most effectively have prevailed. The field of neuromonitoring needs more collaboration if we're going to prevail. I'm Rich Vogel and this is Stimulating Stuff. Welcome back to the Stimulating Stuff Podcast. This episode is the fourth and final in a four-part series in which I'm discussing what's happening in neuromonitoring. If you haven't already listened to the previous three episodes, you should really go back and check those out first because each one builds on the next. Previously, I talked about many of the challenges that neuromonitorists and oversight professionals are facing in their work today and the things that concern them. In this episode, I'm going to be sharing what oversight professionals need to know about what's happening in neuromonitoring, beyond what I've already said in previous episodes, and how we might address some of the challenges you experience in the course of your work. I'm going to break this out into two parts. First, I'm going to speak to the non-physician doctors with the DABNM credential. Then, second, I'm going to speak to neurologists. I decided not to address audiologists because I don't really have a good understanding of their specific challenges. That being said, I think some of what I say today will probably be relevant. Let's jump in. I know there are DABNMs out there that are U.S. licensed physicians, including neurologists, surgeons, and anesthesiologists. In this episode, when I talk about DABNMs, I'm talking about non-physician doctors in particular, the PhDs, DCs, AUDs. So let's break down your current state of affairs. You're board certified in the professional aspects of neuromonitoring. Having undergone direct training under multiple board certified neurophysiologists, having personally performed the professional aspects of neuromonitoring for at least several years, and for hundreds of cases across all surgical categories, having completed the rigorous and extensive process of passing the DABNM, you are both qualified and certified to supervise technical personnel, interpret neurophysiologic data, elaborate differential diagnoses related to neuromonitoring, and make recommendations for therapeutic interventions if needed. Only problem is, you're not a physician. And therefore, according to the 2009 resolution passed by the American Medical Association's House of Delegates, you're not allowed to do this work without some form of physician supervision, at least in states where the practice of medicine has been clearly defined. Also, even if you do perform the professional aspects of neuromonitoring, insurance generally won't reimburse you anymore, except in some states with some payers and in the case of licensed audiologists, but again, only in some states. So what exactly are all you DABNMs out there doing? Well, 
I know many of you, like me, transitioned away from providing clinical care in the years following the 2009 AMA resolution. I honestly don't know where most of you work these days. I know some of you work in academic centers providing professional-level neuromonitoring patient care, but I know a lot of you left clinical practice and work in upper management at neuromonitoring companies. Some of you are unemployed because your upper management positions have been cut to save the business. Some of you left the field entirely and probably won't be listening to this podcast. It's interesting. The theme here is, for the most part, patient care has lost you. Despite the fact that you're incredibly talented and competent, some of you may be performing the professional aspects of neuromonitoring. Perhaps if you work in roles of the neuromonitorist, but most of you are probably teaching, doing quality assurance, managing people, running businesses, or something else, but not doing what you really love to do and what you're great at. It's a shame for patients to not have your expertise, but I also think it's a shame for neurologists to not have your support. It seems that neurologists are overworked, stressed out, burned out, and could really use the extra hands. Well, there may be some good news. As I briefly mentioned in a previous episode, recently multiple societies came together, the AANEM, ACNS, ASSET, and ASNM, and they published a joint guideline on qualifications for practitioners working in neurodiagnostics. To my knowledge, this is the first time all four societies came together to publish a guideline. What's relevant to this conversation is what it says about non-physician doctors holding the DABNM. And keep in mind, this section of the guideline was written by physicians. It says, the DABNM's scope of work or duties include interpretation of neuromonitoring data, supervision of technologists, and rendering a professional report, all working under the general supervision of a clinical neurophysiologist physician who must be immediately available if needed. If you think about it, this is a major shift from perspectives of years past when there was significant aversion to the idea in the physician community of non-physician doctors providing this level of patient care. So what's driving the change? I think three things came together. First, non-physician doctors have a persistent desire to be recognized as professionals. Second, physicians desire to have greater support in providing professional-level neuromonitoring patient care. And third, there's recognition amongst physicians that the DABNM is actually a really good vetting process for those who want to perform the professional aspects of neuromonitoring. This is a great opportunity, which is a win-win for both DABNMs and neurologists. DBNMs can perform the work that they are certified to do in terms of interpreting data and supervising neuromonitorists, in this case, essentially serving as a mid-level practitioner with a level of independence somewhat reminiscent of the early 2000s. And for neurologists, this model helps to lessen some of the burden, particularly as surgical volumes grow. The question that always comes up here is, well, most insurance companies won't recognize the DABNM without a license and appropriate taxonomy, so how do you get paid? My answer to that is, we're talking about a practice model here, not a billing model. Nothing changes about billing. 
If a practice can safely take on more cases by distributing the volume under the same physician's supervision, they can make more money and then they can afford to pay the DABNM as the mid-level practitioner. Now, obviously there's some logistics to work through there in terms of facility privileging and delegation, for example, but it's an avenue worth pursuing. Okay, we'll take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the challenges neurologists are facing and offer some perspectives on that. And now, a word from our sponsors. Veridical RCM is a special kind of revenue cycle management company specializing in intraoperative monitoring, billing, and collections, which is often misunderstood by the insurance industry, by hospital administration, and ultimately, patients. Veridical considers each contract a partnership, reviewing and making recommendations for improvement in all areas that impact revenue, including scheduling, credentialing, clinical documentation, infrastructure, charge master review, and facility contracting. The Veridical RCM team has a deep understanding of the changes affecting revenue with the implementation of the Federal No Surprises Act and each state's rules regarding surprise billing. They use this knowledge concurrently with each payer's medical policy guidelines to compliantly optimize revenue capture. Whether you choose to keep the revenue cycle in-house or outsource to a third-party billing company, you can definitely benefit from their guidance. Visit www.veridicalrcm.com for more information. That's V as in victory, E-R-I-D-I-C-A-L-R-C-M.com. Zinnia X is a state-of-the-art electronic health record platform that helps you manage every aspect of your neuromonitoring practice. Their web, mobile, and chat slash screen share applications are seamlessly integrated, allowing users to get things done from anywhere and on any device. Zinnia X uses the most cutting-edge technology to provide an efficient user experience and dramatically reduce work hours spent performing mundane tasks. Schedule your demo by visiting them at zinniax.com. That's Z-I-N-N-I-A-X.com. Let Zinnia X help you put the focus back on patient care and growing your business today. And we're back. Now I'm going to switch gears and talk to the neurologists. In the last episode, I talked about the neuromonitorist's typical workday. Now let's talk about the neurologist's typical workday. You wake up at 5 a.m., do your morning routine, and maybe rush your kids off to school. In the outsource world, which represents the overwhelming majority of neuromonitoring, you work from a home office, and that's where you spend your day. You log into the chat platform just before 6 a.m. and wait for the neuromonitorist to connect with you in the Eastern Time Zone. You start your morning with four cases. Let's say two cervicals, a lumbar, and a crany. When the neuromonitorists connect with you, at least two of the patients are already in the room and the neuromonitoring plan is in motion. You're frustrated by the late connection and the fact that no one consulted you on the plan, but you do your best to provide input and feedback to support your team. The first order of business is to confirm the patient's identity and diagnosis in each of those procedures. And 
the procedure, the HMP, the plans for neuromonitoring and anesthesia, etc. You've got four chats going, sending out messages, trying to get information, and no one is telling you anything. Finally, after about 20 minutes, the data collection starts. Still, no information communicated back to you. Okay, so baselines are collected. Signals in the crany look good, but the signals are inverted in one cervical and the channels are all mislabeled. The other cervical has motors from only half the myotomes and lower extremity SSCPs are absent, and the lumbar case has nothing. Nothing. The neuromonitorist in that case can't even seem to troubleshoot the train of four. You still haven't confirmed any of the information you requested 30 minutes ago except for the patient's identities, when suddenly you get inundated with information, in some cases passive-aggressively, as the neuromonitorists all work furiously to catch up with documentation and, simultaneously, troubleshoot. You try to assist with troubleshooting, but they're not doing anything that you're asking them to do. Finally, after about an hour, you have all the information you need, signals are as good as they're going to get, and now you just need to watch the data and keep up with stages of surgery as they evolve. Problem is, the neuromonitors aren't giving you stages, anesthesia, vitals, or really anything. It's so frustrating trying to imagine what's happening in the OR. You saw plenty of these cases during your fellowship. But it was so much easier when you were there on site to assist. You wonder how neuromonitorists can routinely make so many technical errors, be unable to perform basic troubleshooting, be unable to communicate necessary information, and give you pushback when you ask them to do anything, particularly when it comes to communicating information to the surgeon. You really hope there isn't an alert because you don't know if you can trust the person on the other end of the internet to manage the situation in the OR. You have constant concerns about medical legal ramifications of this. You've done your best to protect yourself by populating the chat with your typical disclaimers and caveats, but the medical legal risk is always in the back of your mind. While a technologist is statistically more likely to have a lawsuit close against them, even being named in a lawsuit is a hassle for neurologists because every hospital where your privilege needs to be informed. Also, the process of being named in a lawsuit and having to defend yourself is stress and frustration you just don't need. So, you're midway through those four cases, and that's when you get two more cases. Now you're monitoring six cases, which is fairly common for a remote neurologist, and you experience the same issues as you did this morning, except one of the two cases connect with you after baselines and incision, and you can't help but wonder why they couldn't connect with you earlier to establish a plan and give you the opportunity to interpret baselines. Your day goes on like this, managing concurrency, communicating with neuromonitorists, interpreting data, charting your cases, and trying to provide the best care you can. At the end of your monitoring day, you hand off whatever cases are still going to another physician, if one's available, and that's when you start your CME work. You're licensed in 35 states, which means you need to do somewhere between 10 and 30 hours of CME per month to keep up. Your day ends late, the kids have been home for hours, and you've been isolated in this room by yourself with no human contact for the last 12 hours. You've been chatting with people all day, but you don't really know them, and you don't really live in their world. Surrounded by people, at least virtually, and yet 
so isolated. You leave your home office to join your family in the other room. They've already eaten dinner. The kids are finishing homework. It's just in time to say goodnight. You unwind with your spouse for a little while before going to bed, only to wake up and do it all again tomorrow. Of course, what I left out of all of this is the independent contractors out there who also have to manage all of their own state licensure, CME, hospital privileging, scheduling, etc., etc., and maybe even their own insurance billing. And I didn't talk about the minority of neurologists who work in academic centers and hold positions in academia and perform the professional aspects of neuromonitoring on site. That's a totally different world. In the outsource world, where most of us work, a lot of people think the neurologists have an easy job because they work from home and don't have to deal with the stresses of working in the OR. It's not. I hope I did this justice. I mean, in the days when I did remote professional oversight, it was kind of like that. I think the overall clinical quality and competency on the neuromonitorist side was better back then, certainly better than what I described, but the stress was still the same. Before I go on, I want all of my listeners to know that I didn't describe a day in the life of the neuromonitorist in the last episode and neurologists in this episode to draw a comparison or show that one job is more difficult than the other. I did this to show that both jobs are extremely difficult and stressful. I did this to try and spark some empathy between the two roles because I think it's sorely missing. If you understand each other's challenges and needs, if you're willing to give the other some slack, some credit, again, some empathy, if you start there and work on better communication, everyone's lives will be much easier. If you're a neurologist listening to this, I hope you can see from what I said in the last episode that the issues you're seeing on the technologist side are related to a bunch of factors. Particularly, there's this uninviting work environment on the facility side where neuromonitorists are marginalized and even mistreated. There's a lack of financial resources in technical services companies to provide adequate education and training, likely due to the fact that insurance reimbursements and facility technical fees have declined precipitously in recent years, and these companies are just trying to stay afloat. Employee turnover, with people jumping between companies and or leaving the profession entirely, is a significant problem that a lot of companies are facing. And then there's exhaustion on the technical side with limited time to engage in education or continuing education. And frankly, on top of that, most of the skills necessary to perform neuromonitoring at the level often desired are not tested for on the CNIM exam. So some people don't really learn these skills. It's a pervasive problem worsening throughout neuromonitoring. In my mind, the best thing that a neurologist can do to drive change is to advocate for better CNIM testing in the ACNS, who has very close ties with ABRET, and they're the ones who administer the CNIM exam. Unfortunately, I don't believe there's much motivation to do this on the part of neurologists, perhaps because no one wants to rock the boat in the ACNS, and I get it. But it's really the only meaningful thing that can be done to raise the bar across the entire profession. Now, I know that ABRED is working on an advanced exam for people to elevate beyond the CNIM, but the content is unknown to me right now, and there's no telling who will take it and who will pass it. So that's all. 
to be determined. Speaking of rocking boats, I'll tell you where I think the boat should be rocked. Concurrency. I want to share something with you that I read earlier this year. It's from a 2023 textbook on neuromonitoring, a chapter authored by highly respected and influential individuals. The relevant phrase reads, and remember, this is a 2023 publication, quote, the literature shows good outcome for neuromonitoring based on monitoring of one or two or occasionally three patients simultaneously, end quote. It cites a paper from 1995. It goes on to say there is insufficient literature to support monitoring more simultaneous cases due to the effects of divided attention. The potential result, it says, is signal changes may be missed. Honestly, why is a concurrency limit of one to two, occasionally three, being touted as the norm in 2023? No one does it. And it isn't even possible with the number of available neurologists in the context of the volume of surgeries being monitored. Everyone takes on what they're comfortable with. It's an independent professional judgment. And you're being expected to maintain a practice that is consistent with the results of a survey of a handful of academic neurologists from 1995. Lawyers are using this against neurologists. And the argument is bunk. Let's look at how concurrency actually works in the real world. And I'll use the example that I used earlier when describing the typical day of an oversight professional. In that example, the person started the day with four cases. Remember, two cervicals, a lumbar, and a crany. But those cases don't have much overlap when it comes to important stages. So maybe case one makes incision at 730 case two makes incision at 7.40, case three makes incision at 8 o'clock, and case four makes incision at 8.05. So though technically concurrent, the communications, data acquisition, setting of baselines, and opening interpretations are staggered and rarely occur simultaneously for the oversight professional. Then, depending on the case type and length of exposure, the surgical stages and associated risks to neural structures are also staggered. Therefore, while four cases may be monitored, quote, concurrently, each patient is likely still receiving independent attention and data interpretation from the oversight professional during their case's high-risk times, while the others are in low-risk stage. Heck, case four might still be exposing when case one is closing. Then when case two or three of the four first start cases are closing, again with variable timing, the oversight professional accepts two additional cases, which puts their, quote, concurrency temporarily at six. But the three cases that are closing, they generally require very low attention, which allows the oversight professional to focus on the staggered entry of the two additional cases to their workload. This is not like starting four movies at one time and claiming that you can pay attention to all four plots simultaneously. It's more like having four children who were each born several years apart. Sure, you can watch all four at one time, and there are certain contexts, depending on the specific child and the age, that may require more or less attention. 
It's interesting to me that this level of concurrency is basically the norm. It's standard. Everyone does it. Yet, for some unknown reason to me, no one has put it into writing. Instead, we're citing practices from the last century, the last millennium, and acting as if that's the standard. So, when I say rock the boat, someone needs to speak up, speak out about concurrency. Our profession needs a guideline supporting what is already done in standard practice and not what a small handful of academic neurologists did 30 years ago. If there's one thing you should all strongly advocate for in the ACNS, AANEM, ASNM, and AAN, it's a common sense guideline on concurrency. If there's a second thing, it's demanding significant improvements in the entry-level competency assessment for neuromonitorists. So what do you do in the meantime when it comes to interacting with neuromonitorists? Several things immediately come to mind. First, I would say don't jump to assumptions. Give people a chance to explain their actions by asking why. So, for example, instead of assuming that somebody just purposefully connected late because they don't care about you, Ask them why they connected late. Maybe they drove in from an hour away and just found out about the case and the whole room was ready to go and the patient was draped and they had to freak out and go under the drapes and place electrodes. And honestly, the very last thing that they get to do is connect with the neurologist because that is just the way things unfold in the OR. But asking why instead of jumping to assumptions can be a big help. The second thing is have empathy for the neuromonitorists. The OR is chaos. The treatment is largely terrible and they're non-physicians, often with a bachelor's degree, stuck between physicians with very different competing interests. And when I say stuck between physicians, I'm talking about the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, and the neurologist. Uh, third, understanding or appreciating the busy time of a case and limiting rapid-fire communications to non-busy times particularly during the initial setup when they're probably not even at the computer um, or a collection of baselines uh, when the surgeon is staring at them and everybody just wants to proceed with surgery. There are good times to communicate and there are bad times to communicate. Speaking of communication, communicating your needs and why, studies in psychology show very strong evidence that you're more likely to get buy-in when you simply explain why you want something done. So if, for example, you would like the person to place a pop fossa electrode, it helps to explain why you'd want that. And uh, finally, this is a bit of a joke, but also seriously, maybe consider the serenity prayer because in some cases, you accept the things you cannot change, you change the things you can, and just having the wisdom to know the difference goes a long way. So if nothing else, it will help to reduce your stress. I also realize that stress and burnout are real issues that you all struggle with. Everyone does in neuromonitoring. As I mentioned in a previous episode, burnout is a byproduct of isolation and loneliness. Whatever you can do to interact with people will be helpful. I'd say go out of your way to do it too. Create a network of people that you can talk to and bond with in a meaningful way, particularly within 
the profession, not just with family and friends, but within the profession. It will do you wonders. When it comes to stress, workload, and trying to manage the sheer volume of cases that need to be monitored, I'll point out, as I did earlier, that DABMs are a viable solution for you. Consider implementing a three-tier practice model. You can monitor more cases and distribute the work accordingly. It's really a win-win. Obviously, there are regulatory issues to consider. Some states allow you to delegate your work and some don't, so you need to know the rules. But it's definitely possible, and you could dramatically improve your stress levels. When it comes to medical legal issues, I know everyone gets concerned. I think what makes this more stressful is you hear stories through the grapevine of an attorney making an allegation against a neurologist of having done something wrong. The allegation alone, or hearing someone else's allegation, can drive one to consider radical changes in their practice, just to make sure you don't do the one thing in the future that was alleged to have been done wrong. The risk for the physician, of course, is practicing defensive medicine, which can actually look worse under the scrutiny of a savvy expert witness. I've been working as an expert witness for a long time. I've worked for plaintiffs and defendants. I've done it all, and I'm happy to share some important information with you. For example, keep in mind that accusations are never made about negligence and malpractice because an accusation is a term that is used when stating that a defendant is guilty of a criminal offense. By contrast, an allegation is an unproven claim that a defendant has done something wrong, and it's commonly used in civil cases like MedMal. The fact is, attorneys make lots of allegations in an effort to support their theories of negligence. They attempt to call your competence and integrity into question by throwing everything at the wall that could possibly, potentially be considered wrong. That doesn't mean it was wrong, and it doesn't mean you should change your practice. I'll give you an example. Years ago, there there was a neurologist who was under questioning in a case that had a negative outcome. The question was raised, why didn't you order a wake-up test? The question was asked and the question was appropriately answered. Ultimately, that person was dismissed from the case because the plaintiff's attorney realized there was really nothing to pursue. No worries, right? Wrong. That person went on to change their practice as a result of that single question, and they recommended wake-up tests in every alert in every case after that, and they recommended to anyone who would listen that they adopt the same practice. Well, that particular change in practice was met with fury from a surgeon and a facility after a wake-up test was recommended following loss of a motor evoked potential from a tibialis anterior with preservation of all other MEP and SSCP data during a posterior cervical when the patient's head was in pins and the spine was destabilized. It actually got worse from there, but I'll keep it at that for now. The point is, while you can certainly learn a lot from the terribly stressful experience of being in a lawsuit and may consider making changes to your practice, particularly if they improve your workflow or the overall quality of care that you really genuinely believe you're delivering, 
You should not feel the need to adapt your practice in response to every single allegation that gets flung at you or that got flung at one of your colleagues as heard through the grapevine. Attorneys are just trying to make an argument, and there's a major difference between allegations made in a deposition and what constitutes, quote, negligence and, quote, malpractice. By the way, For the general audience or anyone who isn't familiar with how these lawsuits work, a deposition is essentially a formal proceeding in which someone is questioned by attorneys under oath and a record of the questioning is later used in court. People like me who work as expert witnesses read deposition transcripts all the time and sometimes we're asked to give our opinions on the case under oath, again, in a deposition. Anyway, Allegations shouldn't rock your world. I'm sure you all know, if you just do good work, provide good patient care as you'd normally do, everything will be fine. Seriously, I know some of you will automatically dismiss what I say because I'm not a physician and you believe I can't understand your world. I'm okay with that. But I've done the work that you're presently doing, and I know the MedMal world better than most people working in the field. So shifting topics a little bit, I was just getting ready to record this podcast when I read a daily email that I get from the Harvard Business Review. I thought it was so relevant to this topic in general, so I wanted to include a couple notes from it. The title of this email was, How to Manage Your Anxiety When Mistakes Are Costly. It says, If you work in a role where mistakes must be avoided at all costs and think medical, security, financial, transportation professionals, it's natural to feel terrified of messing up. But you can reduce both your stress and the risk of making an error. First, distinguish between critical and not so critical risks and focus most of your time and energy on the former, on the critical risks. Then, Rather than trying to reduce mistakes through willpower and perfectionism, adopt systems and sustainable habits to mitigate those critical risks. Enlist support from colleagues to address your weaknesses and pain points. Address any self-sabotaging behaviors like not asking for support when you need it. Finally, tackle some of the not-so-critical risks or delegate them to reduce any potential distraction from the big stuff. Remember, the goal here isn't to become a perfect person who doesn't make mistakes. It's to design a sustainable system around you that diligently reduces risks. Such an interesting thought. If you want to learn more about that topic, the email that I got was actually adapted from an article that I ended up reading, uh, which is a 2023 article in the Harvard Business Review entitled, Managing Anxiety When There's No Room for Error by a very well-known and respected clinical psychologist, Alice Boyce. I always like the advice they give in those emails. Anyway, if it hasn't happened already, at some point in your career, you'll probably be named in a lawsuit. The approximate odds for a neurologist are about 1 in 400,000. It's highly probable that you will get dropped from the lawsuit, meaning that After reviewing the facts of the case, the plaintiff's attorneys find no reason to proceed. If you ever get deposed, it will be a stressful experience, no doubt, but you'll get through it. 
I was named in a lawsuit once, but it wasn't a bad experience for me. My deposition was about 15 minutes long, and I was dropped immediately afterwards. No repercussions except time out of my day sitting around a conference table in a lawyer's office. I think I went out for a cheesesteak afterwards. Not one of those crappy, touristy grease mops from Pat's or Gino's. No, I probably went to D'Alessandro's in Roxborough. Anyway, I was never really concerned about the legal case, and neither were the attorneys. They said it was obvious from my documentation and communication that I cared about the quality of my work. I gave great attention to detail, and I provided good patient care. That's the ultimate goal, I suppose and a high-quality cheesesteak made with thinly shaved ribeye, American cheese, and a nice, soft, fresh hoagie roll. Sorry, I was just reminiscing about my hometown of Philly there. Anyway, try not to let the possibilities drive the bus. Try not to get hung up on the minutiae. Just do good patient care like you always do. Empathize with those technologists who are struggling in their own daily grind, and the rest will follow. Teamwork makes the dream work. Well, that's it for this episode. Please join me next time when I'll be interviewing my very first guest. I'm really excited about this one. In the meantime, please send your questions and comments to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Rich Vogel, and that was Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening.